Welcome to Lock It Down Sports. I'm your host, Lock Hoover. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a lot to get into. I'm really excited to uh, speak with you today. And before I get into the Falcons and the Bills and the college and college football and a little bit of baseball, first I want you to talk about my friend, my, my friends over at Stream Stream Studio. They're a multi-camera live streaming platform that allows you to go live in less than one minute. That's right, less than one minute. And anything you want, whether it's video podcasting, webinar, streaming platform, allows you to go stream to multi-platforms all at the same time. So go check out my friend over at Stream Studio. Now, like I said, the Falcons, boy, did they look sharp against the 49ers. Not supposed to win that game at all. But what the Falcons do, they grounded and pounded and said, know what, 49ers, we're going to run it straight down your throat. That's exactly what they did, churning out yards and just powering the football. I saw a stat, and I looked it up. Marcus Mariota only threw the ball 13 times. 13 times. That's a recipe for success. For the Falcons offense, when your quarterback, Marcus Mariota, only throws it 13 times. I know it's kind of funny, right? But it it makes me wonder why they don't go get Desmond Ritter out on that field more. Yes, they're 3-3. Three and three. Sounds funny. I know the Falcons are in conversation for a playoff spot early on. Yes, it's early. Six games in. We're third way through the season, though. So... There's some real conversations of the Falcons might be a playoff contender, contending team, especially with the expanded wild cards now. So it's it's tough, but when are we going to see if Desmond Ritter is really the dude? Great to be seen, and so it it's fun, you know. Falcons winning a game they uh, shouldn't have probably theoretically. But the Falcons could very easily be 4-2. and two. You look at either the L.A. game or the Bucks game, which I didn't even get into last week with the Tom Brady getting, getting slammed, slammed, shall I say, and getting that foul from Grady Jarrett. Ridiculous call. Nowhere near roughing the passer. Completely changed the outcome could have completely changed the outcome of that game and the results. So the Falcons got an interesting little scenario going on, and we'll see what happens as the season progresses. Another fun game, Bills-Chiefs. Probably not going to be the last time we see them play, but just the fun of two top-notch quarterbacks in Mahomes and um, and Allen going back and forth is um, – Something to see, and it was it was just a fun, entertaining game. It wasn't interesting enough. It wasn't the highest scoring game on CBS this weekend, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. And then also to Ole Miss, we'll get into more college football, but Ole Miss still undefeated out in the West, and they might have something to say when it comes time to um, when the rubber meets the road. They're still going to go get get through Alabama and face Alabama. But 
they're they're in conversation now for um, something we'll get into later. This playoff uh, picture now is six games in, starting to uh, starting to form now, and we're where we can have some fun conversations and kind of see where um, everybody's at and the early going. Now, speaking of the early going and a game I want to dive into, it's Tennessee, Alabama. Whew, holy smokes, what a game. What a shootout. What a back and forth game. That atmosphere, you could just tell in Knoxville, was loud. And they brought it. They rattled every bit of Alabama in that game with how they played. And even Nick Saban in the press conference, you could tell uh, Neyland Stadium kind of shook Alabama a little bit because the players usually would get all pumped and start singing and dancing. And they didn't do that in Knoxville during the game uh, before a pregame. They didn't do that. That right there is a telling sign of, whoa, this is a hundred plus thousand loud screaming and getting after it. And that's exactly what Tennessee did on their first drive. First defensive stand. And then Tennessee pays it off with that defensive stand and scores a touchdown. That right there set the tone to me for that offense. And especially from a fan's perspective, of course, the players knew they could do it. But just from the fans' perspective, of, okay, all week we get this hype of our offense is really good. Our offense is good. But we haven't played a caliber team that is the University of Alabama yet. Are we, are we real? It's like, I, I want to think we are. But let's see it against a Nick Saban defense in Alabama. Drove straight down after that first defensive stand, which turned out to be huge. It, it sounds strange and weird that a first defensive stand, one defensive stand, turned out to be a big deal. Obviously, it was, but it set the tone for that deep for the uh, for the for the offense to do what they did all game. And then same thing, second in that second second offensive drive, two touchdowns, Tennessee's up fourteen nothing, and. You're like, huh, all right, this is interesting. This could be a track meet. And boy, oh boy, was it a track meet. And I said last week, can Tennessee's defense be good enough? Boy, they were just good enough, right? I mean, Alabama only punted three times in the game and had a missed field goal. I mean, obviously, they're 49 points. They put up points, too. Wasn't enough, obviously, the 52 that Tennessee scored. But it's just a good enough. And Tennessee's never going to blow away their numbers. They're in the lower half in the SEC, in, in all, all of college football, in defensive rankings and numbers. Yeah, I mean, some of that is because their guys are on the field a lot of the time because what's time of possession? It doesn't matter. Tennessee doesn't care about time of possession. They want to score quick. That's just how their pace of their offense is. So, therefore, you're going to be on the field more because your offense scores so quickly. It just comes with the territory. And that, I mean, you saw that very much so in 
the game on Saturday. Also, coming to the defense, and I love this for Tennessee, they put pressure on Bryce Young. And to me, you absolutely had to, had to, had to, because he'll pick you apart if you don't. Perfect example, I go back to last year, the Auburn-Alabama game, when Alabama's last drive on about, what, the 5-10 yard line, they drove all the way down the field, scored a touchdown. Auburn was sitting back, rushing three or four. No, you have to bring pressure. Tennessee only got one sack on the night, and they had four tackles for loss. So for negative yards, they are behind the line of scrimmage, but they were after him, making him move, scramble left, right, uncomfortable in the pocket. And they were hitting him too, hitting him even if they didn't sack him. And I, that matters because you want to – I'm getting hit all night. I'm scrambling. I've got to pull up and run a little bit sooner than I would have liked to makes you overthrow that ball or crap. Now I got to throw it out of bounds. So things like that are huge and it matters. And then another thing Tennessee did in that first quarter was the field position. They had great field position all night long in that first quarter. And they paid off with touchdowns. You have to do that. You have to capitalize on your current situation where you're at. No doubt about it. You have to do it. And they did. And Tennessee, when we're talking about capitalizing, Tennessee capitalized on that touchdown that out from the turnover from Alabama when they when they muffed that punt. Boy, you could see old St. Nick, none too happy with that at all. But also, I think another big thing about that, outside of the score, obviously, it gave that defense a little bit more breathing room because they were it was a quick three and out. Tennessee had to punt, and then the offense was right back on the field because of the muff punt. So it gave the defense a little bit of a breather, and any time you can do that with the Tennessee defense, you have to. Now, I want to say typically this is Bama was very un-Bama-like, especially in the first half. They had a lot of penalties. In that first half, and even during the game, even during the game, over on the game, they had 17 penalties for 130 yards. Typically, you're like, boy, that's very un-Bama-like, but they've been the most penalized team in the country. In the country. When's the last time you heard and said that an Alabama coach Nick Saban team, the most penalized team in the country? And then also, too, that special teams turnover. Just the lack of discipline, unfocused, not focused, as Nick Saban would say. Yeah, that's exactly what happened in in that first half. And the scary thing about that whole thing was Tennessee played about as clean as a game as possible in that first half. They were only up eight. Only up eight. That's what happens sometimes when you get in a track meet. When you get in a track meet, that's what that's can be what's happened. And then, so we moved to the third quarter, or right before the end of the third quarter. Man, talk about a defensive stand. The defense, the big defensive stand there by Tennessee at the end of the third quarter. 
I mean, they had to have that to match that touchdown. They had to have that. There's, there's no doubt about it based on how the game was going and how it, how it took place, score for score, punch for punch, blow for blow. No doubt about it. The only thing I didn't really, I didn't, I, I, I didn't like about Tennessee obviously worked out, but towards the end of the game, that uh, Alabama's last drive, when they're driving down the field, the way the way you knew they were going to score or get in field goal range, why I wanted Tennessee to use some timeouts. They had t- they had timeouts to use to have more time on their end to score. And I'm sitting screen timeout timeout timeout, and it, it it didn't happen. And I was a little I was a little frustrated because I didn't think we were going to have enough time to get down and score. I mean, obviously, obviously it worked out, but it it was that was the one thing I was kind of uh, kind of scratching my head about. So it was it was a huge, obviously a huge game, and it's Tennessee is now into the playoff picture, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And another thing I was really impressed with outside of Tennessee's offense, was how clean the pocket was. Hooker only was sacked one time. He had, the offense had two tackles for loss, but one time, and but he wasn't pressed. He wasn't forced. He wasn't scrambling around near as much as Bryce Young. And that is a great thing for Tennessee offense to have it's very refreshing, and that offensive line can pretty much do do what they did, and they they stepped up in a very impressive way. Now, just here's some, I'm just gonna give you some of these. These are some just like crazy, crazy numbers. I don't know if you've seen or or heard these yet, but here are just some numbers as a whole about that game. So Tennessee, so. Five possessions as a whole, Tennessee did not score on. So they had one punt, two turnovers, and two turnovers on down. So the 52 points scored were the most against Alabama in over 100 years. Wait for it. Swanee. That's right. Swanee scored 52, 54 on them in 1906. So it's also the most points Alabama has scored in a loss. Alabama is now... 132 and one when scoring 49 points. And then Jalen Hyatt is the only player to have five receiving touchdowns against a Nick Saban coach team. And then he was a single game record touchdown, single, excuse me, single game record for touchdown caught by Tennessee in, in player history. And then the total amount of points scored was also a new record in 100. And one points a new record in um, the football game as a whole. Like I said, wild, crazy, crazy game. Before I get into a little bit more uh, college football, let me tell you about my friends from Stream Studio. They're a multi-camera live streaming platform that allows you to stream in less than a minute. You can do whatever you want with them, whether it's podcasting, webinars, platforms. Great product, 
check them out. Stream Studios. Give them a give them a look. Give them a check out. Really neat platform. Now, want to get into um, more a little bit more college football in um, about the Penn State Michigan and Michigan looked really impressive against a pretty solid Penn State team. So Penn State had played one of their big um, non-conference games in Auburn, who obviously we've seen how uh, dreadful Auburn has been this year, but they haven't played all the all their cupcakes yet in, um, in their non-conference schedule. So they played a Power 5 team early on. Penn State looked sharp in that game. They did. They looked good. And then Michigan, obviously coming in undefeated. These are two top 10 teams. Michigan has entered the college football playoff conversation. But boy, can they run the football. They ran for 418 yards, two guys over 150 yards. Impressive, impressive performance by Michigan. What they did, how they handled their business. They had to. How to handle their business. Yeah, of course. They've got a, as we move into this playoff pitcher here, they've entered the playoff pitcher conversation. Tennessee has Michigan, of course, along with your uh, regular suspects. Georgia's going to be there. Clemson's going to be there. Ohio State, Alabama's still in the picture because they're Alabama. Like I mentioned, Ole Miss. Ole Miss is in the conversation now and still is. Southern Cal. And then do you may maybe Oregon? Yeah, you've got a USC Oregon battle, two one loss teams. Maybe one comes out of there. Uh outside looking in. You've got you've got no house. I mean an Oklahoma State team in the conversation right now. And so yes, stuff gonna take care of itself, of course. There's a lot still coming up. Michigan, Ohio State, obviously going to play each other. That's going to more than likely knock one of those teams out. You've got a Tennessee-Georgia matchup that may or may not knock one of the teams out. We'll get into that a little bit later. And then you've got Alabama-Ohio um, Miss who are squaring off. Bama loses. They're probably done. That would be their second loss. I don't see them getting in even with the Crimson on their jerseys and the Nick Saban on the sideline and the star-studded Alabama team that ESPN wants to pull from. That you lost, I don't see that. Ole Miss then has a serious conversation and is in in the ballgame. Now talking about, I was mentioning this earlier, when it comes to this Tennessee game with Georgia, to me, Tennessee beating Alabama was almost more important than the Georgia game. Yes, the most upcoming important games, the next one, Tennessee's schedule was very fortunate in how they fell in their break, where they had Alabama, UT Martin, Kentucky. They don't take care of Kentucky, it doesn't matter. This season's done. Real, realistically, big picture, it's done. You take care of Kentucky, you go in undefeated against Georgia. 
and I would suspect Georgia to be undefeated going to that game as well. They had to get by Florida in the cocktail party. I know it's a rivalry game and all that. Been to a few of them. They're fun. They're cool games. But Georgia is a lot better team than Florida. So, with them coming in, it's a uh, here's an interesting conversation here. And here's how here's how I view this and how I how it looks for me on the on the outside. So, if if Tennessee loses to Georgia, they probably aren't going to the SEC championship game, and they won't have to face Bama again. Sam Sam Bama runs the table throughout. They would have one loss. Alabama would have one loss. Tennessee's chances of getting in the playoff, I would say, might be pretty good. Now, if Georgia wins, like I said, Tennessee would only have one loss. Bama would have two. Interesting conversation. So, if we, Tennessee, were to to beat Georgia but lose to BAM in the SEC championship game, I think we get in. I do. Because, yes, we'd have one loss. Georgia would have one loss. Alabama would have one loss. I think we're getting in. And then I don't see them leaving out a one-loss SEC champ Alabama. I don't. Not at all. So I would think if things shake out, George, I mean, Tennessee and Bama would be the two getting in. Now, if Bama, if Bama beats Tennessee, excuse me, if Bama beats Georgia in the SEC championship game, then I think those two would likely go. If Bama runs the table in the SEC championship game, if Georgia's undefeated, and loses to Alabama, I see those two teams going. Because we're not going to leave out last year's national champion and Alabama. That's just not happening at all. That's how I think it will shake out if it comes to a one-loss team getting in. I don't I don't see a one-loss Pac-12. Surely not a one-loss Big Ten. Clemson's get if Clemson has a one loss, they're not getting in. I don't think Clemson's got to run the table, and they very easily can with their schedule. They're a solid, good football team, and they have a lighter schedule. They run the table, they're in. It doesn't matter what seed. They're happy, just get them in, and that's where they're at. So it'll be something to watch. And this is you can actually have these these serious conversations now of scenarios and likelihoods of how things are going to shake out. Like I said, still a lot of football left, but we're entering the conversation of scenarios that might happen and roadmaps that can be plotted out. So, like I said, it'll be fun, and it's going to be something to watch. Now, I hadn't touched on this. I hadn't gotten into this yet, but and it was kind of almost a sneaky, under-the-radar move based on when they announced it. And the announcement was when uh, Spencer Strider, the Braves starting pitcher, signed a contract right before 
the start of the postseason, you're like, oh, whoa, where'd this come from? And Braves, it's a it's a risky, it's a risky um move for the Braves. And, and for uh, Strider, it's 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 risky on both fronts. So the deal ultimately could be worth up to ninety-two million. They bought it, they basically bought out two years of his free agency, which that's generally your goal of what you want to do if you sign, lock out a young player, you buy out a year or two of his free agency to extend the contract. That's that's the point of locking him up. One of the main reasons, and it has some cost certainty of how much they're going to be paying these guys so you don't have to go through arbitration with them. So essentially, you're going to be paying him more up front and possibly less in the back end of the contract. So it's it could be a win-win situation all the way around. I mean, but like I said, risky. For example, and why is it risky for the Braves? Just perfect example, running their own team. Look over at Mike Soroka. Two lights out years. Then back to back, doesn't even tears his Achilles in back to back seasons. Now he's fighting to get back in shape, his arm, health, all that. Is he is he gonna be the same? He's he's Stuff, he hadn't played baseball in basically two years. Had a few rehab starts last uh, this year in AAA, but he wasn't sharp. So, it, very much big risk. Also, the, like I said, the injury risk is real. How hard he throws, he's a smaller guy. He's not a big 6'5", throwing downhill 100 miles an hour. He's a shorter, smaller guy. And to me, the biggest comparison, I would have to say, look no further than former Met, goes by the dark night, Matt Harvey. Boy, was he lights out for his two, where he first came up through 50-something innings, and then his two full seasons, lights out. But then injuries, and he struggled, and the wheels fell off. So his last three seasons, which is when um, Strider would be getting the big money, 20-plus million each of his three last end of his contract. Example, Matt Harvey, 92 and a third, two-thirds innings, ERA, 486. 2017, 92 and two-thirds innings, a 670 ERA. 2018, 27 innings with a 7 ERA before being traded to Cincinnati where he finished with a four and a half ERA. See, just an example of how quick things can fall off, how things can unravel, and that's the risk right there. Absolutely, that is the risk of locking someone up like that as hard as he throws. Look at Sad example, the postseason. Yes, Strider didn't have, yeah, he was coming back from injury and he didn't have his stamina, but that pitch that uh, Brom hit hit a homer on, it was the slowest fastball they've ever seen from him at 93. 
they looked up at the scoreboard or the uh, uh, scoreboard. They saw 93. Everyone in the dugout just looked at each other saying, we're about to eat. And they did when they, when they exploded for those runs. What if he loses some of his velo- his 98 to 100 velocity during those three, during those back years? Can he figure out how to pitch, how to locate? Because he doesn't have to locate as much now when he throws 99 to 101 upper to middle half. You don't have to be as accurate. You can throw middle, middle at 100 and people are going to miss. You can't throw middle, middle at 93, 94. You get hammered. And that's what happened. Is he, if, if he does lose velocity, is he going to be able to adjust? That's, that's another thing. Some pitchers can't. And they nosedive because they've gotten away on stuff and haven't necessarily been able to learn how to pitch. There's a difference of just throwing and pitching. You hear John Smoltz and all these guys talk about it all the time of, I had to learn how to pitch, not just throw. It's a big difference, and it's something to see. Just an example uh, on Matt Harvey as well. He's made He made in his career $28 million in a little more than seven years in the big leagues. Yeah, he's going to be fine. He wasn't even in baseball last year. So in little, a tick over seven in, uh, seven years, $28 million, That's I, I take it. But it's not the $92 million that Strider's going to have. Say he just briefly finishes through his contract, guaranteed. Because the last two are option years. But if he keeps his uh, rolling, that's what he's going to do. So there's big risk. And it's 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 risky. It, it really is. Uh, on, I say more on the Braves end than Striders. Something to watch how his contract plays out through the years. And I hope he continues to be dominant as a Braves man. That would that'd be great to see. So I guess that's something to watch, something to follow, and we'll see what uh, what happens. I, I promise you next. Next time, we're going to get into Major League Baseball playoffs. We are, as the division division series are wrapping up. I've got it on the TV right here. It's Yankees are leading 5-1 in the bottom of the eight. So they're, they're probably going to close, off, uh, close out the Guardians. And then you've got Yankees-Astros. You've already got Philadelphia and San Diego, which could be an interesting series. I know in the regular season, Philly dominated San Diego, but obviously we've seen in the regular season, you throw those numbers out. And also, I saw this stat too. Philly dominated them, but that was before Juan Soto was with San Diego. So, different series. They've had plenty of time to rest, set up their rotations how they want. That will start tomorrow on Wednesday. And uh, then the following series will start. Excuse me. Yeah. And then the Astros and what's looking like it's probably going to be the Yankees will start the following day. So, excuse me. They start Wednesday. The other game starts today. Boy, Tuesday. Anyway, like I said, we'll get into it 
some of the playoffs next week. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, th- that'll be fun to watch. As always, you can follow me at Lock It Up Media. That's follow me on Twitter at Lock It Up Media. You've been listening to Locker Lock It Down Sports with Lock Hoover. Have a good night.